0: The notes are in your app, you can follow along. And of course, to make it as easy as we can for you, we'll bring scriptures and things up on the screen so that you can follow along. Now, you don't have to look far as you look through scripture to discover that God calls each of us to live a really big life. In overcoming suffering and adversity, Paul says in Romans 8.37, he says, "No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In being elevated to positions of prominence, Moses writes in Deuteronomy 28.13, He says, if you listen to these commandments of the Lord, your God, that I'm giving you today, and if you carefully obey them, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will always be on top and never on the bottom. And in living a full and satisfying life, Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and life to the full. Conquerors above and not beneath, always on top, never on the bottom, living an abundant life. Now it's not often you can get away with saying something like this, but you were called to be a big person. You were, and it would be uncommon for you to come to church and hear sermons and encouragements. It's I've preached it before, I'll preach it again, where you hear things about how God has called you, He loves you, He's going to fight battles for you, that He's called you to make a difference with the gifts that you have, that you could have an eternal impact on others, that there is an assignment on your life and God will give you what you need to be effective and triumphant. Now, all of that is true, but it would be amiss of me to say that it's as simple as it sounds. See, firstly, every single one of those victories and triumphs is not because of your goodness, but because of His. You find that the encouragement in the Bible kind of presents itself like a two sided coin. It can kind of come across sometimes like a backhanded compliment. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced those. When someone says to you, Oh, oh, you look good today, it's like, Thanks. Do I not usually? Are you surprised to find out that I look good today? One of our other lead pastors, one Sunday at another campus after preaching, service finishes, this person hops down and someone in the congregation decides to come up to this preacher and say, you know, I don't usually like your preaching, but today was good. It's like, thanks. Who says that? Like, what do you do with that? And you see that the Bible was kind of full of these moments where God is declaring greatness over our life. He's declaring bigness over our life. And at the same time, we see Jesus in John 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And then when Adam sins in Genesis three nineteen, God reminds him it's from dust that you came and from dust that you shall return. He's kind of like, you're awesome, but also you're the worst. Like you can do amazing things, but without me you can do nothing. It's kind of like two sides to the coin. Now it's true that God calls each of us to live a big life. And in fact, our community needs you to live a big life. People that are innovative and creative. People that are smart enough to start international companies that change the way that we live our lives, scientists that make revolutionary discoveries, artists that create breathtaking work that inspires us beyond our own little world, parents who brilliantly raise other amazing people that have a generational impact, selfless people that fight for the cause of justice in our society on the things that matter, teachers who toil over not only the content but their delivery to equip young people to face challenges that don't even exist in the world right now, ordinary people like you and I living really big lives Lives. lives that are about the needs of others, lives that make a difference, lives that are satisfying, lives that are lived the way God designed you to live. That's cool, but it's also clear in scripture that it's actually God that is the one that opens the right doors for us. He's the one that's ultimately in control of the elements that allow us to live a big life. You know, God desires to entrust each and every one of us with so much more, to release us into a big life, but there's a catch. While God will orchestrate opportunities for us, much of the responsibility for us to step into that big life actually lays in our hands. And Jesus unpacks this in the parable of the talents in Matthew verse chapter 25. So in this parable, the master issues three different portions of silver to three different servants and explains that he's going away on a trip. Well, he comes back from the trip and the one servant that he entrusted with five portions of silver is really faithful with it and he doubles the amount that he has. And to that servant, uh, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, "Uh, you have been faithful in handling this small amount So now I will give you many more responsibilities. In other words, because you did well with this little thing, I'm going to help elevate your life. I'm going to help increase your life. Because you were good with the little that I placed in your hands, I'm going to entrust you with so much more. I've come to learn that big lives are reserved for those that can be trusted with them. How often do we wish we had more? Wish we had greater influence, greater increase, more responsibility, access to more things, and yet we can't get the little thing's Life. Right, to lead a little big life, it starts with honoring and and stewarding the little really well. The other servant that had two portions of silver, he does the same thing. He doubles the amount and God's promise to him is the same. And then the third servant that had one portion, just buried it and did nothing with it. He had a little amount, but because he couldn't get that right, he cut himself off from the opportunity of living a bigger life. And so it is with you and I. Living a big life is on the cards and God will grant that to us But it starts with you and I first doing well with the little that we can control. Let me explain it this way. Maybe you've heard it before. Big doors swing on small hinges. Have you noticed that? That some of the biggest things in life depend on the smallest things that seem to dictate how life will go. Like this. If you talk harshly towards your spouse, it can feel like the whole marriage is rocky. If you don't read your Bible, you'll feel distant from God. If you don't invest wisely, you won't create more wealth. If you hold on to unhealthy perspectives, it'll taint your view of other people. If you keep bad company, it'll corrupt your entire character. James put it this way in James 3, verse 3 to 6. He says, when we we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. It's these little things that can cause destruction if not managed and treated well, but it's also the little things that allow us to have great impact in our lives. I mean, after having a stern conversation with some of his disciples in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus explains to his disciples, you've got to realize that if you have faith in your life, not only will it change your life, but the lives of those around you. And then he just reminds them in case they need to know, you don't even need to have a lot of it. Like faith will change your life and the lives of those around you. And you only need a small amount. He says in Matthew 17, 20, he says, you don't have enough faith. I tell you the truth. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it would move. Nothing would be impossible. And so if each of us are to live a big life, the life that God desires for us, we must be vigilant in the little things. If we want to have big doors swing wide open, we need to make sure we haven't left the little hinges to rust but that we take care of them. After all, whether the door swings wide open or not hinges on this. And I want to, for the time that we've got left, I want us to focus in on the word of God and how, knowing the word of God can have a massive impact in our life. More specifically, I want to look at how that unfolded in the life of David. See, David is a shepherd boy who's been called out by God one day to be king. He's anointed by Samuel, but there's still some time that needs to pass before David actually gets to be king. Perhaps there's some valuable lessons that he needs to learn before he steps into the bigness of that position. And there's this huge Philistine guy that they know is a giant that we affectionately know by the name of Goliath. He stands at nine feet, nine inches tall, or just under three meters, and he's taunting Israel. He's taunting God's people. And as you read the account in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's really clear. In fact, it states it quite clearly that the Israelite army are absolutely terrified. But then along comes a little shepherd boy, David. He's called to live a big life. He's confident. He's bold. He comes out all guns blazing, but confidence and boldness are not going to get him this victory alone. So all the other men around that are terrified of this big giant, they start trying to talk David out of it. They're like, you're crazy. You're ridiculous if you think you can take on this giant. And they begin to highlight all the visibly obvious mismatches in physicality. They're like, he's massive. You're tiny. He's tall. You're short. He's strong. You're weak. His hair is normal. You have a man bun. He's wearing sandals. You're wearing Crocs. Like he highlights all the things that disadvantage a person. He's like, there's no way you can possibly win this battle. And yet David responds and he says, oh, you don't understand. He's like, I've been preparing for moments like this my entire life. He says, I've been caring for my father, sheep and goats. I'm faithful. When a lion or bear tries to steal a lamb, I use my club and I rescue it. I'm bold and I'm confident. I've even killed lions when I've needed to. I'm calculated and I'm trained. He's like, if anyone is positioned for this, it's me. But then he says this. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. He's saying, look, I've been developing myself in the background. I've been bettering myself where I could. I've grown my gift and ability. But ultimately, it's God that's going to turn me into a giant killer. Now, the rest of the army, they're like, well, that's a good speech. I'm convinced. They finally decide to let David go out. And so they try to suit him up with some armor that's clearly too big. It's not long before David realizes this is too big and I don't need it anyway. But here comes a bit in the story that I think we read over very quickly, but it's really significant for us. It says that he went over to a stream with his staff, big stick, in his hand, and he bent down to collect five little smooth stones to put in his bag. Five little stones that would become the ammunition he needed for the greatest victory of his life. Five little things that he prepared in private. Now, let me tell you how I know he prepared them in private. Because as he enters the battlefield and as Goliath gets nearer to him, Goliath says to David, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Sticks. He didn't even see the stones. He didn't even see what David was preparing in private that would be his greatest ammunition. Look, David was going to be a big man. He was going to live a big life. He was going to overcome great challenges, but his greatest ammunition would not come from armor. It would not come from a spear or a sword. His greatest ammunition would not come from confidence or boldness or even the fact that he knew he would be king one day. David's greatest ammunition came from the little small stones that he collected that lined up with his calling that would take down his biggest enemy. And I want to suggest to all of us today that there are some seemingly small little things in our life that, if prepared well, could be the difference between us stepping into the bigness of the call on our life and not. See, for David, what seemed little, what seemed small, was the catalyst for the big. And as you read this story in 1 Samuel, you can't possibly convince yourself that David didn't know the promises of God. Like he knew the stories. He knew the accounts. He knew the triumphs. He knew the promises. I know he was brave. I know he was anointed, but I also know that being a person of, a, of the word was what equipped him and, and positioned him to rise up to live a big life. And so for the time we've got left, I want us to take a closer look at David's life throughout that Goliath-destroying story and others about how knowing the word of God set him up for a big life. So the first thing is, is what we see in David's life is meditate and memorize. Meditate and memorize. There is something so powerful about having the promises of God flowing from your heart and on the tip of your tongue. And living a big life will mean that you come against opposition. You just will. The fact that you come against opposition doesn't mean God is distant, doesn't mean you're outside of your calling, it's just part of the gig. It's all good to come against opposition, but what allows us to move forward with momentum in those moments is that we immediately know what God's word says about us and our calling, that we don't fall trapped to the lies. David would have grown up learning the stories, the oral traditions, perhaps a few written pages here and there. He would have memorized statements of God and what he was capable of. David would have understood Deuteronomy 20 verse 4. He would have grown up learning the scripture that says, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. He would have known that. So when he comes up against the challenge, he doesn't need to retreat back and go back to the farm like a little good shepherd boy that he was, but he allows the overflow of his heart to make a declaration from his mouth. It's not that he wasn't ever going to come against challenge, but when he did, he immediately remembered the promises of God. David said this when he was on the battlefield with Goliath, Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. It says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's interesting, right? He says, everyone here will know.
1: Like, this is obvious.
0: We've learned this stuff. We've gone over it all of our childhood. I don't need to remind you, everyone here will know that this is what the Lord does and this is how he saves. His meditation and memorization gave him confidence in the face of opposition. You know, when Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and he's fasting out there he's gone alone to be with God he gets tempted by the devil and the devil tries to twist scripture to lie to Jesus and lead him astray and if anyone had bigness on their life it was Jesus but he guards himself from deception by knowing in his heart what the scripture actually says if you know the story you'll remember the devil's trying to lead him astray said you should just jump off this cliff Jesus just do it just jump off the cliff God will catch you won't he like that's what the scripture says and Jesus is like mm, kind of but not really He's like, I know it better than that. He goes, that's not really what he means because the word also says that we should not test the Lord our God. know, the devil often lies to you in half truths. Usually when the devil lies to you, it doesn't seem so ridiculous. Like, oh, that's stupid. Like, there's no way I'm gonna believe that. It's like, oh, I might believe that. Problem with the half truth, is it's a half lie. And this is how he begins to plant these seeds. And if you don't know what the word of God actually says about you and your calling and the promises he has for you, you give more time for the seed of that lie to take root in the soil of your heart before you get time to go and discover the truth, to discover it at all, perhaps. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 9 says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Yeah, on your hearts, not just on your iPhones, your iPads and your printed Bibles. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, it's not just about getting into the Word, but allowing the Word to get into you. Allowing the Word of God to be part of every part of your life. People are able to live big lives because they intimately know the truth about the God that empowers them. If I could just give you a couple of really quick memorization tips for anyone who's interested take a scripture pick a short one to start with don't pick jesus wept that's cheating all right you know that one you've just jesus wept amen done shortest verse in the bible but you just pick a pick a passage that you want to learn firstly it's not rocket science just read it a bunch of times repetition is key read it 5 10 15 times just let it flood over your heart and read it a whole bunch of times. And then I want you to not just think about the exact words that you're reading or the exact words you're trying to memorize. The problem with that, it becomes jumbled and you get the words wrong. Read the words, but try to think of the ideas. Try to think of the message of the scripture, because what that allows you to do is block ideas in your mind. There might be three key ideas in the verse, and those ideas prompt the exact words. Now, Start by reading it, and this is what I do when I try to memorize anything, and I found it really helpful, and maybe it'll be helpful for you, is I start by reading the verse, and I get as far as I possibly can until I mess up. The moment I mess up, I quickly read what comes next, and then I start again at the beginning. And then I go through and I see how far I can get. Now, assumedly, if I've just read what comes next, I should get a little further this time. Sometimes I don't. I read what comes next. I start again at the beginning. Every time you do that, you are ingraining everything else that you know, and you're you're moving forward inch by inch. Start again at the beginning and go. Start again at the beginning and go. And you're going to find before you know it, you know the whole thing. Studies have also shown that if you read over content in the evenings, it helps your brain process it from short-term memory to long-term memory. So that can be really helpful as well. You know it's amazing how long a memorized passage of scripture or passage of anything can stay active in our minds. When I was in intermediate school, I used to listen to songs on my Sony Walkman. Those were the days. There was this thing called a cassette tape, young people. It's the glory days, and uh, I would listen to songs, and you know, I would I would try and you know say the words or sing the words at the same time. And uh, when I would get stuck, I was trying to memorize them. I would take the cassette tape out, get a pencil, put it in the cog, wind it back. And then I would start again from the beginning. The exact same method that I just uh, mentioned. Well, the other day, I was driving along in the car, listening to the radio. I'm not sure what station. Clearly a good one. And um, a song came on that I, I forgot existed for 20 years. And I knew every word. Like this thing came on and I was like, oh, this song. And I just started singing it and I was like amazed. It was just like coming out of my heart. I would even thought about the song in like 20 years. You want to know what song it was? Whole Again by Atomic Kitten. It was mean. And no, I will not sing it for you. I know my lane. That song came out, I think, in like early 2000s. That's where it belongs, but... I, and, And just because at that time, I was like, that's cool. It's hip. It's like one of the top songs at the time. And I was like memorizing it. It was still in there. You know what's true? that what takes root in our heart can be really hard to get out, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. So start planting the seeds of Scripture because it's always going to be true and it's always going to anchor you to the truth. You know, the main reason that David was so confident against Goliath was because in the secret place, he would have meditated on God's promises day in and day out. It created an unwavering faith in him that God would help him fight his battles. Using the little small stones that day wasn't something that David just sort of like looked around and saw a giant and thought, I'll I'll, I'll give this a crack. No, no, no. It was a lifetime of dedication and commitment. This was his craft. This was his commitment. Evidently, David ended up only needing one stone to kill Goliath that day, one right smack bang in the middle of the forehead. But the fact remains is that David didn't kill a giant that day because of one brief moment of bravery. David killed a giant that day because it was a result of the lifetime of dedicated practice and devotion. This victory was just the fruit of that devotion. When you commit yourself to meditating on the word of God and memorizing it, it sets itself as your first response. When you're in turmoil, when you're challenged, when your faith is shaken, the first thoughts that come to your mind is, "Mm, but God says this. And this is his promise, and this is what I stand on. It's amazing how much confidence and boldness and faith and peace and assurance it gives you in those moments. I want us to all be like David, who even in our biggest challenges would stand firm on the promises of God because they're not just on our devices or our written Bibles, but they're written on our hearts. Meditate and memorize. And the second thing we see in David's life is private pursuit. And Benji, you can join me. Maybe a low party would, would be awesome. Private pursuit. We see this in David's life. When Samuel is sent by God to go and anoint David as the future king, Samuel carries a really strong sense of who God's sending him to. Now at this time, Samuel doesn't know who he's going to find. God just says, I'll I'll tell you when you get there, I'll make it clear to you. But he has a really strong sense of who it's gonna be. He doesn't know his name. He doesn't know his identity. But what scripture does say is that Samuel was convinced that it would be a man after God's own heart. David is the only person in the whole Bible described in this way. Speaking to Saul in 1 Samuel 13 verse 14. So this is Samuel speaking to King Saul. He says, But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Talking about David. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you, Saul, have not kept the Lord's command. It's not exactly clear what Samuel meant by this when he said that it would be a man after God's own heart, but it's assumed that it was mostly attributed to David's obedience, mainly because in that verse it says, because Saul, you have not kept the Lord's command. Assumedly, David would be the one to do so. After David's time serving in the king's palace and after his big giant killer experience, David goes on to write about half of all of the Psalms we read in the Bible. And what's really clear when you read these Psalms is that David has a genuine heart and he desperately wants to know God and to be close to him. To David, God is not just a powerful supreme being without connection, rather he's personal and he's relational. Notice the personal nature of his words here in Psalm 19. Sorry, sorry, Psalm 139, got that real wrong. Psalm 139, he says, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts are far off. David doesn't say, Lord, you know all things and have searched all things. He says, Lord, you know me, and you've searched me. It can be really easy to judge a person and the bigness on their life by what can be seen. We all do it. Their appearance, their clothing, their status, their wealth, their popularity. And yet it was none of these things that gave David the title in Samuel's mind as a man that would be after God's own heart. First Samuel 16 verse seven. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. This is talking about a moment where Samuel comes to find David who he would anoint as king and he's got all of David's brothers and he's going through them one at a time. And God's like, not him, not him, not him. And he says about one of the brothers, don't look at his appearance or height, I've rejected him. The Lord does not see things the way that you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it was again what David devoted himself to in private that would become his greatest ammunition the purity of his heart led to the elevation and prominence that he would experience. But as you read the Psalms, half of them being from David, you never get a sense that David is devoted to God so that he could become king. He's not like, I've been anointed, I better live up to it, like, it's my duty, I better. It's never so that he could become king. It's never so that he would be accepted among his brothers. It's never so that he might be acknowledged in another place. David's private devotion, surrender and pursuit was pure in heart. And for that, God elevated him to a big life. He would go down as Israel's greatest king. In fact, it's in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five that it says, blessed are those that are pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, when it comes to living a big life, it's the authenticity of the little things that make way for the big ones. So when we pick up the Bible to read it, do we do it so that, so that I feel good as a Christian today, So that we have something to post on Instagram. So that I've got some material to teach my small group. So that I've got content for a sermon. Do we do it so that we feel good about ourselves in finishing a Bible reading plan? Or could it simply be that it's the greatest tool given to mankind to truly know God's own heart? Could it be that knowing God and having Him know us is the clearest way to live a big life? And it's not just spending time with God in Scripture that matters. That's important, but it's how we do that. Real quickly, how do we do that? It's vulnerability. Pray that God would search your heart. It means uncrossing the arms, letting down the barriers, and inviting God into the turmoil and mess of your life. It means confession. We invite God in as we read His Word, and we allow the Word to read us, and it's important that we actually speak out our confession. We know that He has grace sufficient for us. He meets us where we're at. He wants to forgive us, set us free give us a brand new start, but it's important that we speak that out and ask for his amazing grace in our lives. And it looks like surrender. This is submitting and repenting, choosing to submit to God's word as a trustworthy source of truth that we align our lives with even when it's hard. It's realizing that if there's ever a discrepancy between God's instruction and our life, that it's us that needs to adjust. I love this in Psalm 19, David uses six different terms to describe God's word. He uses law, testimony, precepts, commands, fear and rules. And then he further describes God's word with six characteristics. He says it's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean and true. And then he goes on to list six different benefits of God's word. He says it revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever and produces righteousness. David is stacking six layers, six terms, with six characteristics and then six benefits to communicate the perfect comprehensiveness of God's word. It is all encompassing and it is sufficient. One of the greatest biblical heroes, examples, kings and sons we read about in the Bible found himself living a big life. Now, if you know more of David, you know that he certainly wasn't sure of his mistakes and his flaws. He had a whole lot of mess ups but God still chose to elevate him and use him in a mighty way because he had a foundation in the word. He knew the promises of God. He meditated and he memorized. He knew God's promises in his heart. This gave him confidence and boldness in the face of his giants. But there was also a pure hearted approach to simply knowing God, to being in communion with his creator, to wrestle with the tough times in a vulnerable way as he allowed God to come in. Even a giant killing king realize that big doors swing on small hinges.